his neck. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that indeed you will lift up our gaze that we might behold the glory of God. Oh, how we need to be reminded, O oh Lord, that in Christ alone is found all that we need. Thank you for the testimonies of that this morning in baptism and in song. And now, O oh Lord, as we turn our attention to the instruction of your word, I pray that you would be pleased to unveil for us through the weakness of our eyes and our heart of flesh the glories of God, the greatness of God, the amazing grace of God, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us that we might be to the praise of your excellent glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When you are out alone in the darkness, away from the pollution of city lights, and you lift your gaze to the heavens alone, the heavens above, what are your thoughts? For me, looking up into the heavens on a dark starry night, I can only exclaim, how great thou art. You're looking at something that your eyes do not see. This is a picture that I captured on Lake Muskoka under the photographic tutelage of Dr. Scott Martin. At 1 a.m. in the morning, because you have to wait for the moon to get out of the way, and even at 1 a.m., the light pollution of Gravenhurst and Bala are interfering with the Milky Way. It's an astonishing sight, but you have to have some time delay enhancement from a camera to pull out what God sees all the time. And that we don't, who did he make that for? <laughs> he made that for himself and so much more. Creation preaches the glory of God to me. Why not to everyone? If you grant yourself permission to disregard the evidence for God that is everywhere, I'm convinced you do so so that you are neither accountable to know God nor to fear Him or to feel guilty for not knowing Him. If you can deny the existence of the Creator, you can justify ignoring the design and order of his work. You can also justify ignoring the creator's words, which permits you to ignore that what is, is created at all. That's where the majority of our world settles, right there not accountable, the measure themselves of all things, and the only savior that mankind has for most of our world are human institutions. That's the sorry state. So in my Psalms project number four, lessons learned in the past year, I wanna share with you this morning Psalm 19. Psalm 19, so utterly glorious is our God. Uh, this is probably my favorite psalm. I understand it is C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm. It's K.R. Baker's favorite psalm. 
and C.S. Lewis's favorite song. Just putting it out there. I, I love it because it, it's like two great books in one psalm, the book of natural revelation and the book of special revelation. Put together succinctly in this one psalm of only 14 verses. I don't have a big backdrop story from the Old Testament with respect to this psalm like I have in the past ones that I've shared with you. But but I'm pretty convinced since it says it's for the director of music, a psalm of David, I'm pretty convinced that the backdrop is in the pasture. David, all of that time spent in the pasture in dark nights without any light pollution, gazing up into the heavens And he writes this incredible psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord or testimonies of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You all know this psalm, don't you? I don't know that there's a Bible college anywhere that doesn't make you memorize this psalm. I wish I still had it in my memory. I only have pieces in my memory. Immanuel Kant, too, was certainly a Christ-denying philosopher of post, or modern psychology, actually, in his writings, Critique of Practical Reason, written in 1781, said this, There are two things that fill my soul with holy reverence and ever-growing wonder. The spectacle of a starry sky that virtually annihilates us as physical beings and the moral law which raises us to infinite dignity as intelligent agents. I'm pretty convinced he was staring at Psalm 19 when he wrote that statement. I only quote it from really, in my mind, an unsaved philosopher of modern psychology because even he recognizes the greatness of God. Creation and scripture are my two great loves. That's why I've sort of put Psalm 19 before you. I had to come up with a quote. There it is. Stunning in its provocative power to the postmodern mind. Well, Psalm 19 gloriously serves notice on mankind that idolatry and irreligion are indefensible. 
and inexcusable. That atheism is both an illogical and unnatural rejection of the abundantly obvious. Only a fool says in his heart, there is no God. David writes in Psalm 53, 1, having, la having laid in pastures and stared up at the sky night after night. What a spectacular week we had in the cosmos with a super, super moon. Did y'all see it? You don't look into the sky ever? 18,000 kilometers or miles closer to us. I forget which denomination that it is. But this is a setup. Psalm 19 and, it's, and, and David's perspective on creation is a setup for the uh, apologetic for Scripture. I think, you know, as many have, have um, interpreted and analyzed this psalm, have sort of taken it as two equal parts, the equal part of natural revelation and the equal part of special revelation. I don't, I don't really see it that way. I see the, the glory of natural revelation and the awesomeness of God that it sets up as a key apologetic to the spectacular nature of God's word and how trustworthy it is. And I, I wanna show you that. I'm, I'll show you that as we work through this. Since God is this grand, in other words, since God, David sets out, since God is this grand, what he reveals in writing to us is pure gold. That's how we're to interpret this. It presupposes God, because only a fool would, David says, and addresses for all time the question that Surely all of us have wondered about, or at least been asked, about the fairness of God. What about those who've never heard? This psalm settles that for good. There is no one in that category in all the world. For everyone under heaven has heard with their eyes the greatness and glory of God. So here's the answer to the fairness question. There is no one in the category who has not encountered the glory of God. So through all that he has made, God makes himself known. There's an ancient legal phrase. In Latin, it is ignorantia juris non excusat. Any lawyers in the midst? Wannabe lawyers? Paralegals? Ignorance of the law excuses not, as Yoda would say. Ignorance of the law excuses not. So in this country and most countries in the world, willful, willful ignorance of the law cannot be used on the basis for exculpation. In other words, as exonerating evidence. You can't go into a court of law and say, I am not guilty because I did not know the law. It is not exculpatory evidence. It will not stand up in court, otherwise, every single one of us would go into every courtroom under any circumstance and say to the judge, I'm sorry, I did not know it was illegal to steal a million dollars from my neighbor. So that can't be used as a defense, ever. You are responsible to know the laws that may affect your behavior. It's on you. God, likewise, holds all of creation responsible to know him. And unlike the law, which is not printed in the sky every night, God graciously posts the reality of his existence in the sky above every night and in all of creation all day long. 
so that the world is without excuse. That's what the, why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was leaping off of uh, Psalm 19 when he wrote this. In, Psalm, in Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made listen so that men are without excuse Religious ignorance is virtually always intentional. They will not believe because they don't want to believe. In its silence, the muted voice of incommunicable creation sermonizes the glorious God of creation, so that all mankind everywhere is without excuse. Nobody who has eyes hasn't heard. I know that sounds odd. But in its silence it talks and everyone who sees hears. If you have eyes to see, let him hear. So David calls out, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. He calls out, don't you see his work? Every day when the sun shines, it says in the scriptures, day after day they pour forth speech. In other words, because of the light on creation, the sheer variety of all that God has made shouts out the glory of God. By the way, this psalm doesn't, um, isn't apologetic for the existence of God. It presupposes God. This is an apologetic for the glory of God. Do you notice that? It, the heavens declare, heavens don't declare God. God is presupposed. David's like, what? Only a fool wouldn't think there's a God. This, when you look at the heavens, it exposes how great he is, the glory of God. And he says, lift up your eyes that every day pours forth speech telling us of his glory. And every night, <clears throat> the expansiveness, the explained knowledge of God. The glory of God has already killed my voice this morning. Let's see that picture of that milk, Milky Way. So that's what you were looking at over Lake Muskoka. This is our galaxy, it's where we live. Staring back at you are 200 billion stars. That's an estimate, but a pretty good estimate. And there's, in the universe, 170 billion more of these galaxies. That, that galaxy, our Milky Way, is 100,000 light years across. We're, we're in there somewhere, so when, when we're, if, if our eyes were capable, we're in the midst of that and we would see what, what the picture that I showed you uh, from February to October every year, we just see that because we're in there and it rotate, we're, we're, it rotates, we're, we're in the rotation of that. It takes 253 years for us to see the whole rotation. That's just our galaxy. Your mind just kind of loses it when you think about the vastness of God's universe. And then I have a picture of some human tissue DNA. This is human tissue and the, the various lights are matching different DNA to demonstrate the order and pattern of God's design, the vastness of the galaxy and the minuteness of cellular level. 
That's why the psalmist in Psalm 8 said, when I think of your creation, the works of your hand, what is man that you are mindful of him? When you think of the vastness of God's universe and the speck that we are, and your tiny little heart in the vastness of the universe, God infinitely cares about. Calvin, not our Calvin, but John Calvin, wrote this, if you see what you are supposed to in the heavens, you will see the same great lessons in his wisdom and power on the face of earth, even the minutest plant. The eternal power and divine nature of God, what manner of being could do all of this work? David picks the most universally visible aspect of creation, the heavens, to remind us that that God's glory is continuous and consistent. Never a day goes by where God fails to give evidence to us. It's a common language, the common language of the heavens, the common language of creation. Regardless of the obscurity of of human language, yet even unknown to us, every day declares and proclaims the glory of God. In whatever language you find yourself in, God speaks to those people. It's universal. There is no place that the message of creation can be shut out of. Bibles may be banned but the sun and the moon and the stars can't be. There is nobody who hasn't heard. Not only that, it's controlled. The sunrise on Mount Sinai. A group of us this past spring climbed Mount Sinai that we might witness the spectacular sunrise, God's gift to us. Imagine a being, David says, that is able to make a tent to veil the glory of the sun, containing its light until the morning. And when the first rays of that sun burst forth and we were singing great praises to God on that mountain, It took eight seconds for the light to actually travel to us. So we were eight seconds late from what God saw because of the vastness. Every morning comes forth like a bridegroom. A bridegroom I witnessed yesterday, dressed in finest at the perhaps greatest anticipation point of his life. Waiting for his bride. The sun, every single day without fail, dresses up for us like a bridegroom to gaze on us and shine on us. And then he says it bursts forth like a champion, literally like a strong man undiminished the sun will come up tomorrow just as strong as it was today and the next day and the next day you know I I get up regularly in the morning I'm like oh can't face this day the sun never gets up like that every day the sun gets up the same way here I am God's glory, waiting to shine on you and warm you and grow your crops. And nothing is hidden from its all-pervasive heat. So that's the setup for David to say, now, do you think that you 
could possibly be confident in something that this God has written to you? The God who made the vastness of this universe? The God who controls the elements? Is it at all possible that you could trust him to give you the right way to live in writing? Through all that he has revealed in writing, God has given us everything we need to know. The God who created and harnesses all the power of the material and immaterial universe has delivered in writing the ways humans are to live. Since God is all that, David says, since God is all that, how much more certain, and Peter grabs this in 2 Peter 1.19, he grabs this when he says, can we be sure... Can we be of the sure witness of God's word to which we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Peter Peter grabs this very psalm and says, in light of the glories of God, we would do well to be certain of what he has written to us. And now David gives us, interestingly, how David um, understands Scripture. You know, when we, when we analyze or interpret Scripture, we interpret it as wisdom or poetry or narrative or gospel or epistle or, or apocalyptic or any number of genre. And that's important when you're trying to interpret Scripture. David doesn't do that. David takes six terms for Scripture, six adjectives, and six outcomes. It's marvelous. He breaks it down this way. Have you got a moment for us to look at this? Or do you have to be somewhere? Uh, All right, we'll take a look at it then. His law is perfect and soul renewing. What man's law can't do, which is be perfect, or actually convert a person's life, man's law can find someone guilty. Man's law can sentence someone to punishment. But God's law actually changes a person's life. Your testimony to that, God's law converts our soul, changes us, It's designed to do that, to rescue us and to renew us from the way we were to the way that we can be in God. His revealed will, literally the law that David's talking about is the revealed will. Now, by the way, you'll notice that all of these are the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is Yahweh, Jehovah. He starts out by the heavens declare the glory of El. Now he comes to the covenant keeping I am. The tetragram, the Yahweh. I am Jehovah. His revealed will, how to live God's way. Then he says the testimonies or the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy providing wisdom. Literally, uh, the testimony of the Lord that's found in his word are God's take on reality. Don't you long for that? We have so much out there, people's take on reality. And we've lost confidence. I've totally lost confidence on virtually everything I read. I I can't, you can't trust journalism. I, I don't know what you read now to trust. So I know for sure I have something I can trust. The the testimonies of God. God's take on reality is trustworthy. In other words, what God writes in here is this is how it really is. And beloved, you can bank on it. 
It is how it really is. That's, that's what God delivers to us. God doesn't speculate. God doesn't fudge the numbers to make things look better or how he wants them to look. God doesn't stretch the truth to aim in some political direction. God doesn't gaslight us, make us think something is so and it isn't. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. And by it is a well of wisdom for us. Those who really know God's word, if you, the person who knows God's word best is the wisest person in the room. 100%. The precepts, which are what we must do, the precepts are straight and heart-settling. In other words, these are the rules of engagement. The Bible gives us the rules of engagement in God's kingdom, what you are to do. And he gives us precision for life. He adds precision to life. There's no wiggle or wobble to God. I mean, we've all, we've all experienced the sting of God's word, surely. This is how we are to live, and we realize, whoa, I've strayed from that. And it, it's pointed. You've been in this room many times where the Holy Spirit has tapped you on the shoulder and pricked your heart as God is reaffirming to you this is what you're supposed to be doing. And you know there's no wiggle in it, there's no wobble in it, it's straight. The word of God is like a, a sword that pierces from the bone right to the marrow. And you know what? Don't you long for someone who will just tell it to you straight. Don't give me the wiggle. Don't give me the wobble. Don't, don't make me confused. Don't, make, don't lead me to wonder. And that's why it says in the text that it's it's heart settling. It, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Now I know. I know how to please God. That settles my heart. And then he says the commandments, what to stay clear of, are, are clean or pure. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving, giving light to the eyes. What, what to stay clear of? God's word calls us to complete moral purity. It, free, it frees us from unfairness and injustice and error and sin. It removes misconceptions. It's an eye-opener. I, I, testimony upon testimony, Sunday after Sunday, for all of these years, I've heard people say, wow, God really opened up my eyes this morning. That's what God's word does. And then he says the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. Literally, he's telling us how to fear the Lord here. The Bible tells us how to fear the Lord. It's pure and brings everlasting happiness. We never have to wonder if God is trying to manipulate us or if God is somehow pathologic, pathologically insecure as so many leaders are. So he calls us out of the purity of the holiness of God to live holy, pure lives. I think Paul was thinking about this when he was writing to the Romans as well in Romans 12. Therefore I beseech you, in view of the mercies of God, present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy, 
pleasing, which is your acceptable act of worship. When you do that, when your life is characterized as that, as the text says, it brings everlasting happiness. And then finally, the ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. The judgments of God. The measurement that God uses to judge is always 100% accurate and fair. Nobody else can judge us with that kind of perfection. Because nobody else can see into the core of our thinking, of our motivations, of our heart. And that's why when we read God's word and it speaks to us about his judgment on our lives, we can trust it. Because God absolutely knows every single thing about our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our background, who's hurt us, who hasn't hurt us. He knows all of that. And so, he is 100% true, unlike others who have limited access to our lives. And so he says, with respect to the word of God, then with all of that, it, it's more precious than gold. Not only is the word of God your most prized possession, but it's the favorite of your appetite. More precious to us is, is honey. Uh, honey from the honeycomb. He's talking about the honey that is dripping off the hive, that honey, not pasteurized and messed around with, but just the pure honey that just drips off and you just grab it and, um, or for my, my uh, favorite is, is maple syrup. I, I think it is truly the nectar of Canada that can't be beat anywhere in the world. It costs pure gold as well. <laughs> Honey's a lot cheaper. But David here, he didn't have maple syrup, so he's talking honey. And I'll accept that. Honey's great. I love honey. Honey is wonderful. Um, but here's what is important here. Do you notice he says, um, they're more precious than gold than, pure, uh, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. So he talks about the value of God's word as precious, ultimately precious. But it's not something to sit on your museum shelf and say, oh, I, I have all of this precious information about God's truth. It's designed here to actually be tasted and acted upon. That's why he brings honey into it. It's, if, if, I, if I only value scripture as truthful info, but I don't utterly delight in it, if I don't utterly devour it, if I don't allow it to develop in my life an increasing taste, I'm missing the great value. It's not, I'm not treating it as if it's precious, more precious than pure gold. I, I'm, if, if you enjoy, you know, I, I, you're missing the point if, if you just take it as truthful information. If you enjoy listening to me speak, but you do not intend to live the lessons that I teach you at lunch and at dinner and at breakfast and at campfire barbecue and, and, and at family festivals, then all that I have done here is a colossal fail. There's a verse, a section in scripture that's always been alarming to me and it's, it just keeps showing up in my mind as I think about my role and responsibility and I think about you and I think about this text a lot. And it's Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 30 and on. As for you, son of man, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses saying to each other, 
Come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. I'm not Taylor Swift. Apparently, if I were, we wouldn't be able to contain the number of people who would be in this room. And we would have to have multiple services, probably 32 services a Sunday, just to hear her sing and do absolutely nothing about it. Beloved, never turn your preacher into that person. Because the scriptures warn us of missteps and reward us for loyal fear to him, but keeping them perfectly is impossible. Keeping them at all is impossible outside of the help of God. Do you see what he says here? Who can discern his errors? Verse 12, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of a great transgression. Through his character of mercy, God gives grace to the sinner. The best of God's servants falls short of the ideals of God's revealed ways. And, and let me quickly show you how this happens through both ignorance and arrogance. Regardless of what we think there are sins that go on in our lives out of sheer ignorance. Sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. And we don't know that we are producing errors and we're imperfect, imperfect in the understanding of God's word at times. And so we have hidden faults that often others see and we're blind to them. And all of those fit into the category of ignorant sins. By the way, the idea of somehow perfect sanctification in this life evaporates fully in this text. That's why we need a close relationship with the living God. So not only do we have sins of ignorance, but we have sins of arrogance. And that's what's spoken of here. You know, please, Lord, forgive my hidden faults, but keep your servant also from willful sins. These are sins of contempt against God, that you know his word, but you sin against it anyway. Willful sins, high-handed sins, deliberate sins. He talks here about these sins mastering us. If we don't deal with these sins, they will master you. And if these sins master you, you put yourself at risk of not surviving final judgment. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. If you continue in sin, if you continue in arrogant sin, you place yourself in jeopardy of not surviving final judgment. We're talking about willful sins. You know you're sinning, and you sin anyway. You cannot serve God in sin. That's why we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Arrest my wicked desires from toxic things and things that would lead me away from you. What are the things that prevent us from sinning? The Holy Spirit, God's word, and accurate teaching. Here at Calvary, one of our Calvary discipleship vision is to pursue maturity, completeness, that's what he's talking about here in blameless. blameless. We'll never be perfect, sinless people, but we, will be blame, we can be blameless, mature, complete. What God is doing in our lives, that's the vision that we have. 
The goal of our 111 discipleship vision is to present everyone perfect or complete or blameless in Christ. Not sinless, but as people who are not mastered by arrogant sin. That's why we pray and we are promised in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, if you confess your arrogant sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, your ignorant sins. This is what makes prayer of confession so important and so necessary regularly. Lord, I don't know how many sins I've committed this morning. I know of my arrogant sins, but I don't know of my ignorant sins. So Lord, thank you that you forgive me, that Christ died on the cross, that I might be forgiven, and that I might have a close relationship with you through this forgiveness. So we pursue the right ways of God and reject deliberate sin. And we wind this all up with this great request and prayer of David. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Through depending on God's, in God in prayer, let us live to please him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jehovah, for your covenant of grace that you have reached down and rescued me, not only forgiving me of my sins and freeing me from the desires to sin and the guilt of contempt against God, but giving me a desire to speak for you, a desire to think and contemplate about you as I gaze into the heavens and as I'm secure in your word. Beloved, what we say matters. Creation is to proclaim the glory of God and you and I are creation. And what you think matters If our thoughts are not right and pleasing to God, there is no possible way that our lives can be right before him, that they can be holy before him. There's no possible way. So what do we need? We need pardoning grace. We need preventing grace. We need restraining grace. We need enabling grace. As a man thinks in his heart, as a woman thinks in her heart, so is he or she. So let's think better, beloved. Let's meditate better. Think on what is true and what is honorable in all of the mess around us. What is right, what is pure, what is lovely. And the last one is what is well reported, not hearsay. Stop meditating and ruminating on hearsay and speculation. It'll sink your soul. Meditate on what is well reported. You can count on it. We as New Testament people reading this text can't help but see my rock and my redeemer? Wow, he's talking about Christ. The Old Testament kinsman redeemer who had the office and the right to purchase a near kinsman. Our God has done that for us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, buying us into his family. And he is our rock our solid ground and our sure hope. The promise here is how complete will be your salvation and your sanctification in the work of God through his holy word in your life. Our Father, we thank you so much for just the magnificence of you. Thank you for your creation. May we not see it pedantically. May we just allow our souls to soar as we look around at the 
at the, the greatness of your handiwork, O oh God. And may it set up our hearts for confidence in the word of God in this insecure culture we live in that is seeking to undermine our confidence, undermine our joy, undermine our security, O oh God. The God who spoke the vastness of the universe into existence has given us a sure word of his desire for our lives. May we embrace it with all that we have and all that we are, O oh Lord, for Jesus' sake, amen. So a question for you to consider as you leave this morning. What does your life declare? Worry? Anger? Bitterness? When people look at your life, they see disappointment, discouragement, sadness. The heavens declare the glory of God. As part of creation, it's the Lord's pleasure that our lives would declare the glory of God because he's truly glorious. So, invite the Holy Spirit to reshape what's going on in your countenance and in your reality. Reflect his glory in your life. Declare it by how you carry yourself in the people around you. Father, we praise you and thank you. We love you and we pray and thank you, oh God, that you have made us and you will keep us and you love us and you have saved us and you intend to take us to be with you forever and you intend to walk with us now and you are our joy and our salvation, our rock and our redeemer. In you alone we trust. In Jesus' name, amen.